one of the principles of the Dharma that I appreciate very much is that is the understanding that nothing is static, that nothing is permanent, nothing is static. There's no stasis in reality. And of course the opposite of static is ecstatic. And I like that because it points to the nature of the way things are, which is everything is alive. And in my way of seeing and experience, it's quite magical. The life itself is magical in all its forms, right? In human form and in animal form and insect form and and plant form and, and cellular forms and forms I don't even know the names of where things are alive and changing. And so there's a beautiful chant that goes something like this. Anicca vata sankara upadava yadamano upakitu Nirochanti te sang wu pasamo suko, which says, All things are impermanent. All things are impermanent. Their nature is to rise and to pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. And I, I love that because it's paradoxically totally true, right? To come into harmony with the way things are means on the most common level is we can just relax because reality is doing itself. And of course, I could point to each of us and say, you are reality. This is it. There's something real here and magically real magically alive. And I like the magic of reality. I find it beautiful and touching and moving and, and sometimes I don't like it even, but I still like it. I even like it even if I don't like it. Meaning I appreciate the phenomena of reality appearing and disappearing, appearing and disappearing. And it's part of one of the things I think we begin to experience on retreat, right? Do you remember yesterday? Anybody remember yesterday? <laughs> you know, like most, some of it? Yeah, right, yeah. It's gone, totally gone. Even it was something, uh, I, I didn't hear the fire engines. I don't know if they did sirens or anything. I didn't hear that. I was somewhere in teacher village or somewhere and I, you know, working on my talk and, and then I'm walking up the hill. Now there's all these 
fire trucks. It looks like, oh, something's happening. So I stopped and talked to the, the fire people and, uh, and, you know, got the lowdown. And, okay, sounded like, you know, a, you know a, again, from the teacher perspective, a relatively normal thing was happening uh, that I know happens here sometimes on retreat, which is somebody was screaming a little in the woods. And so people got concerned, which, you know, it's good. Remember, if you ever need to scream on a retreat in the woods, go way up high. And, and it's fine, you can do it. But you don't want people who are on retreat hearing you because they get really nervous if you're up there, if you're just behind the dorm screaming. <laughs> so, you know, but you know, we all keep living and learning. And so, so I felt pretty comfortable when I heard what was going on. But even that kind of, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And kind of magical life. And it's just amazing that people show up to help you if you're concerned. And they've come before. I've, I've called them at times as a teacher. And they just like come up like total bodhisattvas. And they're not Buddhists. I'm not suggesting they're Buddhists, but they beautiful hearts and you know they do a service to all of us <clears throat> and so the magic of reality I have written here like this moment is it right this moment is it and I said it earlier too I said you know it's going to be gone in a second and then the next moment will appear really out of nowhere we tend to project a continuity on reality, and that's good, it's a good thing to do. And all. But it may be more magical than that. It may be just arising and passing, arising and passing. Suzuki Roshi said a great thing. And Suzuki Roshi, if you don't know him, he's worth checking out. He's one of the true wise people that I have known. And I didn't know him personally, but I've practiced at Zen Center and Green Gulch and Tassajara, and I just know him from even his book. Um, I can't remember his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Yeah, fantastic book. And uh, which really I read every few years, and it's like, oh my God, I read it and I feel like, oh my God, I can't believe what he's saying, because it's so true and so powerful. He said, no moment can be repeated. And he said, actually what happened was he said, when he realized no moment could be repeated, he was enlightened. No moment can be repeated. And I know for myself, I'm not quite there yet. I'm trying to get there or understand that or realize that because I think moments happen again because it seems similar but similar is not the same it's similar but no moment can actually be repeated and so today some people were working part of what happens is people's identities change over life anybody notice your identities changed right good Good. We're in the same boat. It's called the uh, identity dharma. And letting go of identity 
can be a very difficult part of practice, and it happens. And uh, partly I've, I've reflected on this, um, partly because I'm older now, and it's really great to be older, in my opinion. Maybe it's not somebody else's opinion, it's mine. Because you get a little bit the wisdom of aging, and you get to see, oh, here is a life. And you see not only, at least for me, I don't even see here's a life. I see I've had many lives. And I don't mean past lives. I mean in this life, I've had many lives. And, and it's been amazing to watch those lives and how attached I was to each life I've had. Like I really believed, oh, this is it. I, or this is a good life. Or this is a bad life. But I believed it very thoroughly. And I was, like I grew up in Detroit, I had a whole life in Detroit, and it was very powerful life in Detroit, and, and good life. It had its ups and downs, meaning me, I had my ups and downs, but it was a good life. And then when I left Detroit, I moved to New York City, and I had a, great things happened in New York City. And, and uh, I started, you know, I worked, I got a job I wanted, I got an apartment you know, in the Lower East Side when it was the Lower East Side. And, and uh, you know, I paid $120 a month for a place. It was fantastic, fifth floor walk up, very cool. I thought I was kind of thought I was hip. And, and, uh, and, and then I ran into this street theater in Golden Gate, not Golden Gate, Central Park. And it was great. I loved the street theater. So I offered to make things for them because I was a cabinet maker's apprentice in New York. So I offered to make things for them because I loved what they were doing. They were anti-war and anti-racism and ecological. And this was early and they and creative and funny and musical. And, and so after a while, I wanted to join them. And they, they taught me how to join. At first, they said, well, you have to quit working. And I said, what do you mean, quit working? How do you do that? They said, oh, we'll teach you. And they, they taught me, so I quit working. And, and, uh, and, uh, and then I did street theater for a number of years. And it was radical, political, kind of wild and fun. And outside of the box that I knew, it was definitely not happening in Detroit in the same way when I was a kid. And, and, and it got me into music, and I became a musician and really, really got very involved in music. And, uh, you know, like practicing eight hours a day kind of music and, and then playing, jamming, a lot of improvised jazz, jazz and post-jazz improvisation. And uh, loved it, it was totally great. And so I had a whole life, first in street theater, and then after street theater, I had a whole musical life. And I was in San Francisco, and, and so in my, also had a very cheap place in San Francisco, it was great. And so in my flat in San Francisco, I had a performing space, and I had musicians really from around the world performing in my house, but it was my music space, it was called Temple Max. Because I was a little, I wasn't spiritual anything, but I, I was devoted to music. And I understood something about the spiritual realm of music. And so it was called Temple Max. Max was my dog, so it was named after him. And, um, and, uh, and we would do something 
uh, you, you'll appreciate this. Not only did we have music, we always had food when, when we had performances. So people came, heard music, and we also gave them f some food to eat. Uh, partly based on a street theater who I knew in New York, who's still alive, named Bread and Puppet. A fantastic group, and still happening. Go see them if you can ever see Bread and Puppet. Fantastic. And they always, even in New York, they're not in the city anymore, they always gave bread at every performance, which was like a brilliant thing to do. And we, we, were, we were talking, we didn't know we both knew Bread and Puppet and Peter Schumann who started it. And so we were talking about that today. And, um, and so we would also give food, music and food. And so that was a whole life that I had. And I also did a lot of ethnic music because I loved ethnic music. So I played in a Balinese gamelan for five years, including performing in Bali at the National Balinese Gamelan Festival in Bali. And, and so, you know, that was great, kind of wild and interesting and learned a lot. And, and then, you know, and then that, and that life ended. And I ended up finally going to school, which I'd never gone to like college. And I got a, you know, a BA and an MA and, and uh, became a therapist. And I knew a lot, of, a lot about psych, psychology a little because I was a little crazy. And so I learned about psychology and it helped me a lot. So then I became a therapist and tried to help other people. And, and then, I, then at some point I got into meditation and, and meditation to Buddhism and Buddhism to doing, getting serious about Buddhism because I knew a lot about practice from practicing the flute because I would practice eight hours a day. So then sitting for eight hours a day, oh, that's no same thing, only you don't even have to play, right? <laughs> it's even easier in a certain way or harder in a certain way, but... And, uh, and so I did a lot of retreats and then I got asked to teach because I was sitting a lot of retreats. And then I became a teacher. And, and so that's been a whole life. And even that life ended in some ways, especially with the, the, the near-death experience because everything ended for a while with that. That was very serious to have a brain injury of that dimension where you get unplugged, right? Eugene got unplugged, right? Like dying, but I didn't die. And, uh, and it was very powerful and, um, you know, and then slow recovery, slow coming back. And, um, you know, life is still changing. It's not the same. Even, even as I said this, even who's here now is not who was here before. And so it's been a very different life post-accident. And I'm partly saying that just to point at change and what it means or what happens or what's difficult if we don't go with change because things change even when we don't want them to change. Like I, I thought I would never not be a musician. I don't play music anymore at all. But, you know, it, it's... Partly I could say, I let go of music. Really, I could say, oh, the music let go of me. And it just wasn't what was happening anymore. 
And it's true even about being a therapist. It was great. I loved being a therapist and I'd had a lot of training. I didn't say this, but I'd been... Um, uh, my training started when I was about 14 and I quit school in Detroit. And I had a choice, because you can't quit school at 14. I had a choice. You could, I could either go into juvie, juvenile home, or I could go into a mental hospital. And everybody, my brother basically said the mental hospital will be better. So I went into public Detroit mental hospital, which was actually incredibly helpful. And it really, really helped me. And really, I attribute a little bit the beginning of my waking up to that experience because it took me really outside my box. And the people there were so kind and so uh, beautiful. And it was before the medical institutions just gave drugs for everything. So I didn't get, uh, I didn't get medicated. Uh, but I was on a locked ward, and you know it was serious. And but I had a great shrink, and you know group therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, physical therapy, um, family therapy. This is, and this is a public Detroit hospital. It was it was fantastic, and um, and good good people there of all kinds, and all kinds of people on that ward. Right, all all colors, shapes, religions, nationalities. We were on the all, and we were all teenagers who were having problems, basically, and were getting help. And it was really, it was great, actually. And partly, I'm I'm talking about all this because you're hearing a bunch of different identities that I've had, that I also had to let go of. Right? I couldn't keep the street theater identity when the street theater was over. It was great. I loved it. It was a great scene. It was very cool. Blah, blah, you know, all and then you, just, you have to let go at some time because reality is not static. It changes. And the same with being a musician. I loved it. I loved music. Very devoted. And, but it wasn't, it wasn't the right thing at a certain point. And same with being a therapist. Things change. We let go. I had a total identity as a therapist. It was great. My father couldn't barely even... <laughs> this is true. My father... My parents were not so sophisticated, especially my dad, who was a working man. He started work when he was 14 and never stopped. When I was a kid, he worked six and a half days a week. So that's... You know, he was... We were not upper class. He was working hard. And he would, but he was a good man, good, good hearted guy. But he but when I became a therapist it was a big deal because uh, cause, you know, I'd already been institutionalized. They didn't know what the hell was gonna happen with me. And so and so then I actually did okay and then I went to college and then I went to and then I got the highest degree of anybody in my family, which would made no sense to me, but it worked and and uh, and he kept saying he kept saying, "Oh, Eugene's a psychotherapist." Because that's all he—that's—he he, he could barely say that phrase. It was very sweet and very—he was very proud and happy, and uh, yeah. But and so all I'm pointing at is things change, identity changes, 
and there's a kind of letting go that needs to happen when we come into alignment with change and the truth of that there is no stasis in reality, that everything's changing. And of course, when I thought about this, was originally writing some of this talk, thinking about being a musician, I had some music quotes come from one from Bob Dylan. He said, he not busy being born is busy dying. And that points to what we're pointing at about the lack of stasis in reality. Oh, everything's passing, everything's arising also. They're both true, right? The moment goes, here's the next moment. The moment goes and something new is born. He not busy being born is busy dying. Or one of my total mentors in music, Charles Mingus, he said, in my music, I'm trying to play the truth of what I am. In my music, he was, a, he was an improvised jazz musician. He said, in my music, I'm trying to play the truth of what I am. The reason it's difficult is because I'm changing all the time. And it's one of the beautiful things. If you ever discover that really brilliant um, form of music that was created here in America out of tremendous oppression, you hear the heart and the intelligence come forward that understands something deep about reality, right? And he's saying it. It's difficult to, to, to play his music, not because the music's difficult, because to be real, you have to play what's here. And to play what's here, you have to be in the moment to see what's true. And of course, in Buddhism, one of the metaphors for awakening is, this is said in the Pali Canon, a spotless, immaculate vision of Dharma arose in one. Everything, that, and here's the, the spotless, immaculate vision of Dharma arose in him or her, and the, that was everything that is subject to arising is subject to passing away. Everything that arises, passes away, changes, is alive and then goes and something new comes. And here's another piece from the Buddha, from the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, he said to the monks, he said, how do you construe this, practitioners? If a person were to gather or burn or do as he or she likes with the grass, twigs, branches, and leaves here in Jetta's Grove, would, would the thought occur to you, it's us that this person is gathering, burning, or doing with as he or she likes? And the monks answer, they say, no, sir. Why is that, he asks. They say, because those things are not ourself and do not pertain to ourself. Even so, he replies, even so, practitioners, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. It will be, a, the, your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. 
And what is not yours? Form is not yours. Form means body. Form is not yours. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Mental processes are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. Let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. And so you hear a radical teaching about letting go from the Buddha. Let go of form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness. That's radical. We're, we tend to identify with all of those and think, that's me. And he's saying, it's not you. Let go of it and see what happens. Then see what's here if you let go of it. And of course, if I'm going to talk on letting go like this, I have to say, um, uh, letting go takes a certain kind of discernment, but it's not uh, detachment. It's not, and I'm using the word detachment as dissociation, right? We're not dissociating with reality. We're not being attached reality. We're here with it. And as I said earlier, we are reality. It's right here. You don't, you don't have to detach from what's here because you're already here. But you don't have to attach to it either. And, and it's paradoxical letting go because there's, maybe there's two levels of letting go that people talk about. One level is, is like, here, let's do it here, we'll do it like this. Watch, see that I can let go of this whenever I want, right? <laughs> that didn't work, it was supposed to just land on the mat, but right, I, I just let go of it, right? But some things I say, oh, I'm gonna let go of it. No, I'm, I'm gonna let go of this. <laughs> I am. I'm going to let go. No, don't laugh at me. I'm going to let go. But I'm attached to it. Or we could say it's attached to me. And so the letting go can't happen mechanically. Right? If if something's not so important, it's easy to just go and let go of it. And great. You can do that. Sometimes that's that works. But actually letting go is not something we do. This is part of the paradox. Letting go is something we happens that happens as we start to wake up and then things let go of themselves or things begin to self-liberate is one way it's talked about. Ajahn Chah talks about letting go this way. He says, do not try to become anything. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not become a meditator. This is radical Buddhism. Here, do not make yourself, do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, 
resist nothing. And then he goes on a little later on, he says, when the heart truly understands, it lets go of everything. And so he's equating understanding with letting go, not with something we do. And it can be not so helpful to try to let go by pushing things away or suppressing things or denying things because they end up festering anyways. And this is from a woman a teacher who I really appreciate. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think how to frame her. She was a tantric Vedic Tantric teacher. I'm trying to remember the name of the book I read about it. Um, can't remember. Maybe it'll come back to me. Her name was Devi. And she, she writes about, she says, people come to her and say, I've had trouble letting go. And she said, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go, but how do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things with full consciousness, with a totally open heart? Right? So you hear what she's saying. Oh, you don't try to let go too soon. Right? Everybody wants to let go, but how do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart? The first thing is having the the experience of touch, <clears throat> of profound contact with things, with the universe, without a lot of mental commotion, everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. Beautiful teaching, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, touching reality fully, openly, kindly. And then she says, if you go before touching deeply, that can bring on turmoil, mental turmoil. Many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold, right? They go like this. If this is me, she's not saying this. They go like, oh yeah, I'm not going to hold on. Oh, no, I'm not going to get close to any of that. Instead of getting close and then relaxing and seeing what can happen, meaning you can let go even as you touch things. She said, she said, they let go before taking hold. The heart is never opened. They enter into a sterile void, or we would say emptiness, and remain imprisoned. When you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. So here's something I would like to read you from the Buddhist teaching of Anathapindaka, who's our lay ancestor, right? I don't think we don't have, nobody's a monastic here. So part of the reason we get these teachings is because of Anathapindaka and what he did in our service. So I really like mentioning him and he's, he seemed like he was a good guy in general, very devoted to the Buddha. He gave the first, he was very generous, he gave the first offering of land for the first um, uh, monastery for the practitioners. And when he was older, he was sick. And 
the Buddha heard that he was sick and he sent two of his disciples to go check on him. He sent uh, uh, who? Oh, Sariputta and Ananda. And they went and they went to visit him and they said, uh, I hope you are getting well, householder. They knew he was sick. I hope you are comfortable. I hope your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. And there is subsiding and not increases apparent. And then he answers them and he's very real with them. He said, he says, Venerable, I am not getting well. I'm not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. Their increase and not subsiding is apparent. Just as if a strong man was splitting my head open with a sharp sword, so too violent winds cut through my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband, so too there are violent pains in my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a skilled butcher or their apprentice were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife, so too violent winds are carving up my belly. I am not getting well. Just as if two men were to seize a weaker man by both arms and roast him over a pit of hot coals, so too there's a violent burning in my body. I am not getting well. So he tells them what's happening. He's aging, he's close to death, and it's painful. And he's being real with them. And they hear him, and then they give him these teachings. And, and there, it's a long set of teachings. I'm just going to say some of it. But it's a long set of teachings that begins, Householder, train yourself thus. This is how to train yourself. They say when he hear his dukkha, his suffering, they say, householder, train yourself thus. I will not cling to the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space element. I will not cling to the consciousness element. And of course, the elements was a very common way to relate to physical form and what was happening. And they, and they say, I will not cling to the consciousness element and my consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. Thus you should train. And then they go on. I will not cling to, train yourself thus, householder. I will not cling to material form, to feeling, to perception, to formations. I will not cling to consciousness and my consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. Train yourself thus. I will not cling to the base of infinite space, infinite consciousness, of nothingness, to the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And they're describing very sublime states of consciousness that are available in deep meditation. And they say, don't cling even to that. And then they keep going on and they say, um, Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to this world and my consciousness will not be dependent on this world. I will not cling to the world beyond and my consciousness will not be dependent on it. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, 
cognized, encountered, sought after, examined by the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent on that. Thus you should train yourself. And when this was said, and this is after this, I'm giving you a short version of all that was said, and and it said, when this was said, the householder and not the Pindaka wept and shed tears. And the Venerable Ananda asked him, are you foundering, householder? Are you sinking? He's saying, are you dying? And, and Anatta Pindaka says, I am not foundering, Venerable Ananda. I am not sinking. But although I have long waited upon the teacher, meaning the Buddha, and, his, uh, and the bhikkhus, worthy of esteem, never before have I heard such a talk on the Dharma. Never before have I heard this talk about not clinging and this, at this level. And, and he responds, Ananda's response says, such talk on the Dharma householder is not given to lay people. It's not given to lay people, you know, clothed in white. Such talk on the Dharma is given to those who have gone forth, meaning monastics. And then Anatta Pindaka speaking for us, he says, well then, Venerable, let such talk on the Dharma be given to lay people clothed in white. There are clans people with little dust on their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dharma. There will be those who will understand this level of Dharma, this Dharma. Right? And then they leave and then he, he actually dies and go and reappears in the to Sita heaven and it said that's a good thing in Buddhism but but it but it's but here's the key thing for me is first of all Ananda Anattapindaka um, being real with them and then they giving him a whole teaching he's never heard and it's a teaching of letting go of not clinging of not being attached to anything and he, and he doesn't understand why later in the text it says the reason that householders weren't given this teaching was there was a fear that they would shirk their responsibilities if they heard those teachings where the monastics didn't have any responsibilities. They didn't have to make money. They didn't have to take care of family. They didn't have to take care of land. They, that wasn't their role, and and so the fear was, oh, householders, if they let go like that, they wouldn't fulfill, they wouldn't pay the bills, basically, or feed their family, or whatever it might be. And, of course, that's not true. And so we can appreciate, I feel very appreciative of Anattapindaka in making sure these teachings were given to those of us which I'm speaking to all of you, with little dust on your eyes. With little dust on your eyes. Mm. Mm. And so, the teaching of Anattapindaka points at the radicalness of what the Buddha is inviting us to do which in my mind is actually not radical. He's pointing at what's already true. Here's my understanding, and I could be wrong. Really, there's actually nothing we can actually hold on to. 
the the idea that we can hold on to anything i have found i can't i can't find anything i can really hold on to i find that i can believe i can hold on to something or i can have ideas that i can hold on to something or i could try and keep this with me forever you know and and i keep you know i you know, whatever it might be, my watch or whatever it is, oh, I'm not going to lose that, I'm not going to let that go. It lets me go because nothing is static in reality. Nothing is permanent. Nothing stays. And so holding on is a misunderstanding of reality. It's not that I, can't, I really can't hold on. I can't hold on to anyone, and I like to hold on to people. I like people, and but really, I mean, it's one of the great pleasures that I've had of being a parent is seeing that my daughter is not going to do what I tell her to do. I mean, she does some things I've told her to do, and you know, good enough, good enough. That that's what it's been, good enough, good enough. She was good enough growing up, good enough even as a teenager. And then she's going to go do her life. And it's her life. And I'm happy to offer guidance. That, and it's rare now she ever asks me for guidance because she's an adult. But, but every once in a while she does. I'm always so impressed when she does. She did recently. She wanted advice, which she never asked me for. And, uh, and so I gave her some good dad advice, by not, but not actually by pretending not to give her advice. <laughs> I know how to do it, and uh, and uh, you know, and but she's still going to do what she wants because she she, uh, she asked about should she take this job or take that job, and why? And I gave my advice, which was I didn't make a choice. I said, oh, it'd be good if you did this, and if it'd be good if you did that, and you'll see which one's right. And either way, you can't go wrong. I did a, that kind of thing. And, and then, of course, then I never heard anything for a few weeks. Finally, I called up and said, well, what the hell happened? Oh, no, I didn't take that great job, which was a big deal job, you know. And, but then four other things got offered to me, blah, 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 blah. And so, I'm like, good. <laughs> you know, but either way, it's, you know, we're not in control of anybody. So how can we hold on to anybody? Right? Or we're not in control of really anything. So how can we actually hold on to anything? And so letting go is really coming into harmony with the way things are, in my opinion. And the same is true of life and death. Right? I mean, we can't hold on to life. We can love life, we can appreciate life, we can enjoy life, we can give it our best, which I totally recommend, all of that. But we can't hold on to it. It's going to be here for a while, and it's going to be gone. Like everything in reality, comes and goes. And Bob read a quote from Jennifer Wellwood the other day, yeah, who I'm also friends with. And uh, I don't know if you know her husband died recently. Yeah. Uh, John Wellwood, who many people know. He was a pretty well-known psychologist, wrote books, and good, good man. And, uh, and he uh, died, and I got a call that they were sitting with his body. 
and did I want to come? And I, so I, can, I went and sat with his body, and which I haven't done in a long time. I haven't just hasn't been in my world that way for a while. And uh, very moving to go sit with his John's body and and be with a community of people sitting with the body for three days and uh, be with Jennifer, who's a beautiful being, right? Beautiful, wise being. And she wrote a poem that I really appreciate uh, about uh, letting go and about change. And, and, it's, and she's a little radical, you'll hear. She's got a warrior spirit, uh, Jennifer. She said, my friends, let's grow up. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, she says, look, everything that can be lost will be lost. Everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, don't be shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with a ruthless impeccability. To a child she may seem cruel, but she is only wild. And her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyways, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. And I appreciate Jennifer and her spirit. And I love that she says, this is the true ride. Because, you know, my brain injury happened on a bike ride. And uh, you never know where the ride's going to take you. And it's a wild ride, life in general. It's a wild ride. And we're all on it, right? We're all here. And please, uh, may you give yourself to this wild ride of being alive. Let's sit for a minute, please.
we have some time for walking practice and you don't have to wait for us right now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.